Welcome to the main course. I'm Barbara Casiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. And today we're going to talk about seafood and sustainability and, you know, a growing franchise and kind of having fun with that and the point of of why you get into the restaurant business. So with me today is Jonathan Wethington, who's the CEO of Shuck and Shack, which is based in North Carolina. So welcome, Jonathan. So first, tell me what is the Shuck and Shack concept? Sure. So, well, first, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Shuck and Shack, we are built on, if I have to give, I get asked this often because um, it's pretty easy to confuse seafood because not a lot of people know about seafood, but my literal five-second elevator pitch is if you like cold beer and you like raw oysters, you're probably going to like us pretty good. So that's the Shuck and Shack at its core, uh, ice cold beer, great signature drinks, cocktails, Raw oysters. Then, of course, we do other seafood items and non-seafood items as well. Pride ourselves on trying to do the things that we can do exceptionally well. So what's your background in restaurants? And, you know, what, what gets you excited about this industry? It's been a tough couple of years, but, you know, what kind of keeps you going? Sure. So my background, I have no restaurant experience whatsoever. The founders of this brand also had no restaurant experience whatsoever. I have been in customer service, though, and, and I view kind of restaurant and retail as a right hand and the left hand of the same body, so to speak. You're, you're you know, generally dealing with the, you know, the everyday general public. Use a lot of the same skill set across those avenues and across those industries. And I spent a long time in retail, retail management, kind of cut my teeth at various both large and small brands. My first official job ever was working for a franchisee of a shipping and packaging service back in my hometown. And then when I you know, went off to college and grad school and all those things, I always maintained the job. And I, I just love the industry. I, I love the customer service sector. I love, I love the general public. I love pleasing people, making people happy. And I think for me, that was a natural fit to come over to Shuck and Shack. I knew the founders. And so that was my initial involvement. And then Thanks for the second part of your question. Yeah, the last few years have been difficult. I think what keeps me going is that people still want the same things. That hasn't changed. I think that the requirements to get the same things, to get the similar satisfaction that people experienced through 2020, it's sometimes a little bit tougher. We have to be more careful with some of the things that we're doing now. We have to be more forthright as how we're handling things. And, and just honestly, communication with the general public, I think, has become a big part of how restaurateurs are operating at this point. And hey, if you're dealing with a COVID outbreak within your restaurant, just let them know. There's no need to hide it. It's become kind of ubiquitous with everyday life at this point. What gets me going every day is still pleasing people and making people happy. Uh, that, I mean, literally, that's that's what that's what keeps all of us driving every day. So talking about pleasing your guests, what is the experience that you hope they get when they walk in the door? Sure. I think one of the biggest things that we try to do and that we work really hard at doing is taking all the pretense away from seafood and especially oysters. I think there's a natural association that when people think of oysters, the first thing they also often think about is a steakhouse. So you think about oysters, they think about a steakhouse. So we'll go to such and such steakhouse. It's a great place. It's a white tablecloth. It's going to cost us some money. It's a special occasion. We'll order a dozen oysters on the half shell as an appetizer, and we'll enjoy that before we dig into our steak. I do that still. However, it's our goal and it's our mantra and part of our mission is we want to take away all that pretense. We believe that exceptional seafood, great seafood, American-caught domestic seafood 
can be served without the pretense, without the white tablecloth, and we believe it can be an everyday menu item. And that's kind of what we do. Uh, that's what we specialize in. Where are you located now, and where do you see the brand growing? Sure. We're probably located in the southeast right now. So we're in North and South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and Maryland. However, we have recently uh, signed leases in Illinois, in Texas, and we're expanding to the Northeast and in the Midwest. The cool thing about our concept is that we can go virtually anywhere. If you're looking at kind of the national footprint, there's a lot of white space, which means we can go in primary markets, but we really like secondary markets. We don't feel like Chuck and Shack as a whole has to be at the corner of Maine and First. We can go into secondary markets that are really, really underserved. And we've done very, very well in those secondary markets. So to answer your question, anyway. So when you're looking for a space, you know, what kind of size requirements do you need? And what, you know, what about a location says this is where we want to be? Sure. So it's funny. Our, our size requirements have evolved over time. Our first location is 960 square feet extremely tiny. Our second location was originally 1,800 square feet, and then we moved it around the corner and became 2,700 square feet. We found that that location and size can vary and that we are pretty good at determining locations and them not all being the same. General size requirements are anywhere between 2,000 and 3,500 square feet. We're most concerned, I think, from a location standpoint, we want to be near rooftops, we want to be near bedrooms. We used to use this language a lot. We want to eliminate the pilgrimage for seafood. So we want to go near neighborhoods. We're gonna, we want to go where people can pull out of their driveway and be in our parking lot in five minutes. We want to go where people can walk to our restaurants, bike to our restaurants. Those things are really, really important because that's a big part of creating the community atmosphere that we've tried so hard to create. And the only way you can do that is not putting it at an exit off the highway, which, you know, we can do and we have done. Uh, but a big part of that is putting it near rooftops and bedrooms. So is your target customer more on the suburban end as opposed to, you know, more of an urban business feel? Seafood lovers are all over the place. Uh, we have restaurants in central business districts where it's a more urban market, more business market, a younger crowd, if you will. And then we have restaurants kind of in traditional single family neighborhoods. Uh, so there, there's not one key to the lock. I think that that's one of the things that we've done a really good job at is that our customer base is extremely wide. A funny story on that. Several years ago, we had a, a really big market research uh, psychographics done uh, through a marketing agency. And one of the things they came back to us and said, is, well, your average customer is between 25 and 75. And I said, <laughs> thanks to everyone. And your average customer is about 50% male and 50% female. <laughs> Again, thank you. And your average customer is widely varied uh, based upon race and, race and ethnicity. And I said, again, great. So our average customer is everyone. And it's the truth. Our restaurants are extremely varied. You may see folks who are in their first career or who are in college. You may see retirees, you know, bellied up to the bar in the afternoons. It, it is a extremely wide, varied audience that comes into our restaurant. So there's been a lot of seafood concepts uh, coming up in the past few years. So who do you assess as your competition and how do you think you compare? Sure. So uh, a lot of the most popular seafood concepts right now are kind of the crab concepts. And, you know, that's great. I think any time there's more access to seafood, that's great. 
their philosophy on things is definitely different than ours. A lot of what you see right now in the market is oil in a bag, very, very heavily seasoned. And we just don't take that philosophy. We, we believe that seafood, domestically called American called seafood, is best when it's brought out of the water, put under some heat and some steam, and then served on a plate. Uh, yeah, we do some seasonings, and yeah, we do some special dishes and signature dishes and sandwiches and all of those things, but that's kind of the differentiation point. And as far as competition is concerned, we don't really have national competition. Uh, our biggest competition seems to be localized. A lot of the times we may go into a market where there might be one other oyster bar. Sometimes that oyster bar has been there 30, 40, 50 years and hasn't changed the menu in 30, 40, or 50 years. That's where we see our biggest competition. But of course, there's some regional chains that have about the same or less number of units that we have, but we are full service, full bar. And that is a big differentiator in what we're doing. We want to bring the authentic coastal atmosphere and authentic coastal vibe to all the communities that we're going into. So you're franchising. So what about the concept makes it franchisable? Uh, uniqueness. A number one is uniqueness. You know, the individuality of what we're doing, there's not a whole lot like us in the market. Yes, QSR, even for the last decade, has been huge. The convenience factor, you know, drive-through, all of those things, speed of service, all of those things that QSR has kind of hallmarked in the last decade has has made that extremely popular. I'm still very bullish, and, and my entire team is bullish on there's still people that want experiences, and our numbers show it. Um, we've grown every year by leaps and bounds, and we just believe that what makes it popular and how we can continue to grow and why we chose franchising is because people desire true, authentic experiences. And we know that based upon the way that we're training our staff, the food and the freshness of the product that we're bringing in, the quality of product that we're bringing in, and the integrity of the vendors that we're using, we know that we can deliver on that. And, and that's one of the things that I think that we've done extremely so what are you looking for in a franchise partner? The biggest thing is grit. We hold no punches in that the restaurant industry is difficult. It is difficult. You can make it into rainbows and unicorns all you want. But when push comes to shove, someone has to open the doors and someone has to close the doors. And in between those two times, it's cooking the food. It's hot. It's a big physical commitment. Um, it takes people out of their comfort zones right away because you're going from a hot kitchen under a hood, cooking food into dealing with the general public and everything that comes with that. I love that portion of customer service and, and dealing with the general public and making people happy. But let's face it, not everybody's happy all the time. Um, and that's a big part of it. I think that for us and franchisees, we're looking for grit. That's the number one quality. People who will push through when things get tough. People who understand what they're signing up for. I think that's really, really important. We're not going to sell you on a bill of goods that says it's going to be all easy. It's not. It's extremely difficult. Uh, and that's why not everyone does it. That's why plenty of people talk about wanting to open the restaurant, a restaurant of their own, and it never happens because it's tough. Number two quality is they can have a conversation with other people. That interpersonal communication is extremely important. If you want to build a community, if you want to build a bar, build a bar atmosphere and a restaurant atmosphere, having interpersonal communication skills is absolutely critical. You can have the best food possible. You can have great people within uh, your restaurant that are serving that food. But without fail, every single restaurant on earth takes on the personality of the owner of that restaurant, whether they like it or not. 
And if you don't have those critical communication skills, you're outgoing, you know how to speak to people, you know how to solve problems, your restaurant may not may not ever maximize, may not do as well as it should. And so those are those are the two biggest qualities. And then beyond that, you have your standard course of study things. You've got to be financially qualified. Restaurant industry is difficult, regardless of whether it's a shuck and jack or you know, brand with thirty thousand worldwide units, it doesn't matter. Um, it's difficult. You have to be financially qualified. It's a humongous commitment. It's a humongous financial commitment, time commitment, all of those things. So I would say those are some of the three characteristics and qualities that we're looking for. So in what ways do you support your franchisees? Every way possible. Um, I mean, I, I talk about this a lot. I mean, some mastermind groups, and we often talk about, hey, what should we be doing at this stage? You know, I, I think about the support that we gave our first franchisees coming on and how that's evolved. And and, and maybe the, the package in which we're delivering that support has changed, uh, but our commitment to that support has not has not waned at all, um, has been unwavering. We found new ways to try to support our franchisees. I think the biggest thing and supporting our franchisees is making sure expectations are set. When you go to open a restaurant, you know, oftentimes when you're, if you are a franchisee looking for a franchisor and they're making promises of saying, we can get you open in, you know, 60 days or 90 days, or it's a quick turnaround or it's only going to cost this. You're not going to go a dime to love this. In my opinion, you should run in the opposite direction. Um, I think making sure that expectations are set is the biggest part of the support that we give on the front end of our franchisees, especially for franchisees that have never been in the restaurant business before, saying, hey, when you come into this, we're going to take significant time in the property search in to make sure we find the best spot possible uh, that's affordable, uh, you know, that's not exceeding what we believe should be market rate. We're going to help you negotiate that lease along with your attorney. We're going to look for qualities of the site that we believe will make you successful. We're not guaranteeing that success because it's up to you. Uh, but that we believe will make you successful. We're going to help you uh, on the build-out side and trying to determine, hey, looking at your bidded bidded projects uh, with your general contractors, what's the number that we want to be at? Where do we need to be when we're looking at all of those big costs? And making sure that the investment that you're putting into the location can be made back because that's why you're doing it. You're doing it, you're making an investment in the franchise uh, because you want to have more money at the end of the relationship than you did at the beginning. So we're trying to make a lot of those decisions up front. And then pre-opening, we're making sure that you're trained. Because at the end of the day, when the keys are handed over to you and it's time to open your restaurant without fail, there's a moment that I see in every franchisee's eyes. And I won't use the language here, but it's the oh crap moment. And the oh crap moment for those franchisees, that's when it becomes real. When we drive away, so to speak, because it's theirs. It's their baby now. Uh, they're away from the hospital and the doctors and the nurses and everyone helping them attend to that baby. And all of a sudden, it's theirs. They have to take care of it. And so it's our goal as a franchisor to make sure prior to that opening moment, to make sure that our franchisees are as prepared as possible. And that is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, we, we put it all on the table. We talk about it openly and honestly with one another. And I tell franchisees when they come to approval day and when they start to get to know our staff, even prior to signing, I tell them up front, I say, look, there are going to be days when you're going to walk in your front door and think, what the hell was I thinking? There are going to be days when you get home and you hate me. And that is totally fine. There are going to be days when you want to do something else. And that's also totally fine. Because guess what? There are days when I don't like you either. But that's okay. What we're going to do, though, is we're going to move forward together. We're going to get over it like adults should get over it. 
despite our differences, and we're going to get a restaurant open, and you're going to be happy with it, and we're going to be happy. So the biggest thing we do is setting expectations, and then all the other things that every other franchise or does, we do all of this. So you were talking about how, you know, the brand is, you know, a focus on the experience of dining. So how did the pandemic affect that? Big effect. We weren't immune to that at all. I think one of the things, you know, the good part about seafood is that it's it's naturally a differentiated product. Most people, when they consume seafood, it's done in restaurants. People simply don't cook seafood at home. And that's very advantageous for us. The bad part is, is that seafood doesn't travel all that well. Cooked seafood doesn't travel all that well. One of the biggest effects that the pandemic had on us was that because we were very experiential and because we do believe that it's about the experience when you come into our restaurants, and, and as a sidebar, that experience includes boys are allowed to be themselves. We have no spiels. We have no scripts. We don't tell them they have to say these things when people come to the table. I want you to be you. Because I'm not asking you into my house and saying, welcome to the Webbington household. Are you, there's two of you here tonight. Yes, of course. I'm saying, hey, have a seat. I'll get you a drink. That's the kind of tone that our employees set when, mm-hmm. when our guests walk into the door. So when you take all of those things away, because we believe our employees are the ones that add color you know, to the coloring. The lines are there, right? The lines are the food and the drink and all those things. Our employees have that color. When you take that color away, it's more difficult to operate. And so for us, two of the things that we did, I believe that were perhaps maybe a little bit differently than some other brands did. We didn't focus heavily on the way. We knew that when uh, delivered food walks out the door, whether it's any of the vendors, not picking on any of them. Listen, they're, they're in the business to make money. Okay. When any of the vendors come and pick up our food and walks out the door, it's a loss. It's more often a net loss to the, to the restaurant. So instead, what we did is we pushed curbside a lot um, to go. We believed that our product was good enough and could stand on its own legs that people would call it in and would come and pick it up. Uh, because if you're sitting at home all day, you're working from home, your kids are home, your spouse is home, you've been in your room over the garage looking out that double windows into your driveway and seeing no traffic on the roads, the last thing you want to do is go downstairs and cook. So our simple approach was let's engage you on social media throughout the day regardless of whether that's a formal or informal engagement. And let's get you to pick up the phone and dial our store number. And when you did, we'll have it ready when you come up. So that was one of the one things that we did. The second thing I touched on briefly was to just stay engaged, not go dark. One of the biggest things that we did uh, in reaching our customer base was saying, hey, we are so excited to see you again. We know you're excited to see us. Here's a picture of the food that we're going to be serving. Or here's a stupid music video. Or here's a meme we're doing this, we're just trying to keep them engaged so that when they did take that chance, especially early days of, of 2020, when things started to relax a little bit, we knew that they were betting on us and we knew they were going to take that chance on us. We knew they would be the butts in our seats uh, because our food's better. Our experience is better. Uh, and so we just kind of doubled down on the things that we knew how to do. So you kind of focused on building relationships with the customers, even though they couldn't be inside the store at the time. Bingo. I mean, it's if we call ourselves a community and we call ourselves an experience, you can't have the community and these experiences without those relationships. And we have incredible regulars at every single location we have. It's because of that relationship. So in addition to the pandemic, restaurants have also been dealing with 
staffing problems, supply chain issues. It's like just getting hit all across the board. So are these still issues for you? And, you know, what what are you doing to kind of handle them? I mean, it seems you, you know, just from how you're talking about your staff and, and allowing them to shine, you know, their own personalities to shine, that it seems you're very engaged with them and in and meeting their needs. So, you know, what do you, what issues are you dealing with? What are you seeing with staffing and supply chain? Sure. So I think on the staffing level, we, we saw kind of an evolution of, you know, the great resignation, so to speak, during COVID, whenever there were forced layoffs. And then prior to that, when people just kind of figured out, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to try something different. I was extremely, extremely passionate and outspoken in other interviews and, and publicly and privately that I didn't think it was wage based. I, I did not. I think that I think that played a part of it. Um, but I do think really the mechanical role of working in a restaurant and then having some time off to adjust and some time off to think about what you want to do changed a lot of people's mind on whether they wanted to be in the industry. And so I think people were more willing to take chances because the job market it was a job market in favor of frontline employees. We needed them to come back. We wanted them to come back. Um, and so they saw that as an opportunity, rightfully so. Um, if I'm in those same shoes, I'm doing the same thing. I'm going to work hard and, I'll, and I want to feel a part of something. I always have wanted to feel a part of something. So I'm going to find a job and go to work. But if I want to try something different, I might do it. Um, and so I don't, I don't hold any sort of blame to your average employee trying to make that decision. I think a couple of the things that we did in looking at that relationship with our frontline employees to really the people that are carrying the water, right? Like, let's be honest, we're successful because of the decisions that our frontline employees are making. Period. Hard stop right there. Yes, did we create the business model? Did we, you know, not perfect, but are we in the process of perfecting the business model and making it, uh, you know, attainable, affordable, profitable, all of those things and repeatable? Yes, we're doing that. But it doesn't matter if we can't repeat the business. So all due respect to frontline employees on that front. One of the things that we started doing, quite frankly, and it sounds so stupid and minuscule, is we started talking to our employees. Uh, as opposed to it being a face-off uh, all about wages, we just said, hey, what you got going on right now? Tell me about your life. And, and we did this in, in one of our in our company location that's uh, straight this way, one block. I can throw a baseball in the front door of one of our company's stores. And so I, I would go into the store every day. And while that store is not mine, it's owned by the partners that founded the brand, I can still talk to the employee and say, hey, what's going on? What do you need? What do you need from us? We're working on the pay thing, we're giving you a raise, you know, we're trying to get you better hours, but what else do you need? Tell me something that you need and trying to meet those needs uh, really head on. A couple other things that we did and we allowed the, we allowed our franchisees to have a lot of leeway in this because we're not getting into the joint employment stuff, but a lot of our franchisees were just totally upfront with their employees and said, Hey, you want to work four days? That's fine. Tell me which days you want to work. Now let's fill in the gaps. And so. We just found being ultra flexible on those things was a much better position to take as opposed to taking a staunch seat and saying, no, this is the way it's going to be because this is the way it's always been. That's the wrong answer. The, the labor market has changed. And I think that we have to be aware of that and we have to recognize that. And listen, as entrepreneurs um, that want to grow our businesses, we've always really been good at figuring stuff out. And we've always really been good at being agile. 
now is no different. We're just not dealing with real estate anymore. We're not dealing with some of those things anymore. A lot of it's very employee focused. So we have no excuse of them to figure this thing out. The second part, supply chain, it's tough. We're fortunate in that we have pretty decent buying power with the number of restaurants that we have and that we we work with a supply chain management company that acts as our purchasing manager uh, for our company. And so we buy with about 600 other restaurants across the United States. So we're not just buying with Shuck and Shack. Um, we're buying with several, several other brands. And that has helped us out significantly because we can make purchase commitments on some commodities that other people simply don't have access to. I think the biggest change for us was that you know, using shrimp as the, as the prime example, the biggest change for us has been we have to be more responsive and have a quicker response when things are available. So, for instance, we would purchase shrimp, do a case commitment a year at a time. We could purchase, you know, this is not actual numbers. We could purchase 50,000 pounds of shrimp a year at a time. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't happen right now. You can't do that right now. And so what we were doing is we were having, you know, daily conversations with our supply chain management company. They were working directly with the distributors, directly with the shrimpers out of the Gulf and saying, what do you have coming off the boat? We'll commit to that. What do you have coming off the boat? We'll commit to that. We'll take it all. We'll buy it all. And so making sure that we were, we were agile on the franchisor side has been helpful. And then, you know, all of this, all of this is just talk until it hits the consumer side. Prices have gone up. We have to go up on prices. We want to pay our employees better. We want to treat our employees better. Uh, and so one of the things that we've done is we've gone up in pricing. Now, it's been less of a surprise for most of our consumers because a lot of our menu is market price. Our base items are market price anyway. So they're accustomed to that yearly fluctuation. But we have to educate consumers on what we're doing. One of our franchisees called me a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, crab legs right now are outrageous. Um, snow crab legs are outrageous, regardless of how much buying power you have. And he called me a couple of weeks ago and he said, I got a cool story for you. And I said, tell me, I'd, I'd like to hear something nice. He said, I had a customer come in and I think at the time, I don't even remember what he was charging for crab legs, but it was about, I don't know, eight or $10 more per pound than the customer was used to paying. And, you know, this person was irate. And so I came out of the kitchen and said, hey, let me show you something real quick. Brought out the invoice, took it straight to the customer and said, this is actually what I paid for exactly what you're eating. And this is also the average wage of the person taking care of your order. I hope you understand where I'm coming from. And the customer completely changed their thing um, because they understood this is not, <laughs> this is not inflation but just within the restaurant in order for us to make more profit, we're making less money now, even with rising prices than we had. And so it's important that we're doing that through our customers that there's an educational component to it. But those are kind of the two ways that we're addressing the employment and supply chain. So does that, the inflation and the rising prices concern you? Or do you think at some point there's going to be a leveling off? You know, I, I try to think of it from a couple of different lenses, a couple of different perspectives. If I'm a supplier uh, and I'm bringing in, in or whether I'm a distributor, let's take the distributor portion. If I'm a distributor and I'm buying all these commodities and all these products from all over the country and all over the world, and, and my numbers have not gone down, uh, my profitability is in fact better than it's ever been. And my uh, frontline customers, which are my restaurants, are willing to pay that and then pass that on to their customers. I'm probably not coming down on price. I, I am probably going to maximize that. Now, 
me as a CEO and me as a, as you know running a brand, part of that makes me angry because I believe that we have played ball long enough to know that you know we expect sort of, we expect honesty and integrity from the people that we work with. If your price is lower, we want you to charge us lower because we're going to buy from you because you're the people that are supplying. That being said, I do think there is going to be a break. I think our supply chain management company, along with other supply chain experts in the U.S., you know, this was you know pre height of Omicron, which now we're seeing possibly the 19th or 20th of January is kind of a peak date of infection rates. We're seeing Q3. We think the prices will begin to decline at that point. I don't think they're going to come straight down the hill. I don't think they're going to decline as as fast as they increase. However. We're prepared for a lot of those things. Like I said before, market price menus, uh, our customer has the expectation that if they're going to eat the product and the quality of product that we're serving, they're going to pay a little bit. I am positive, upbeat, and optimistic about it because there's no sense in being other, any other way. We're just going to respond and do the best. So sustainability is very important to the brand and I'm assuming to your customer base too. So how do you kind of maintain you know, all of that quality control as you grow. Sure. So I think the biggest part of sustainability for us, and when you're looking at scaling our business, the biggest part is traceability. Uh, traceability is a key component of, of sustainability. So whenever we're talking about oysters in particular, uh, we can tell you exactly where that oyster came from because we're using you know standard shellfish procedures with our tags and dating of boxes and dating of tags. We can tell you where the shrimp came from, we can tell you the boat that it came off of. A lot of times with our fish, we can also tell you uh, exactly where that fish came from in the general region that it was called. Um, and so the traceability portion is huge. That has remained the same. There's not a whole lot of change. You know, I think uh, in, it's kind of like an old adage of managing a larger budget, we're just adding zeros. And for us, it kind of takes the same mold. Like we're using the same suppliers, we're just buying more. And so we still have the same traceability efforts that we can do with many of our, you know, our key components and our center of the plant items. And then on the top of that, we really are taking a hard look and a long look when working with our supply chain management company and working with new purveyors that we're bringing on and making sure that we're asking pointed questions when, when we bring them on. You know, first off, we're serving domestic U.S. call product. A vast majority of our product is domestic product which is much easier to trace to begin with because there are more stringent procedures here and more stringent procedures, you know, for food handling, food safety, all of those things in the U S than anywhere else on earth. And so there's a, there's a natural leg up, so to speak in, in doing those things, but we're talking with our purveyors. How are you fishing? What are your methods of harvesting the product? What is your replacement methods? You know, talk to me about your sustainability practices all of those things are a part of our everyday conversations with our purveyors. And then once we find a trusted purveyor, we try to give them business because that's another component of it. You can't make empty promises. When we find a trusted purveyor, even if it's a little more expensive, but it fits the integrity portion of our product, then we're going that purveyor and we're trying to move our entire system into that purveyor. So why is the concept of fun so important for your brand culture? Yeah, people don't want to do things that they don't want to do, especially when you're talking about the investment level that we're at. If you're going to spend $650,000 to open a restaurant, you don't want to do it and it'd be a total buzzkill. You don't want to do it if it's not fun to show up for work. A lot of our restaurants and owner-operator, and if this person is spending their second career 
for their life savings and what we're doing, we would be foolish to make it unfun. The restaurant business is fun when you can dictate your own destiny. And I think that's one of the coolest things about being in our franchise is that we give our franchisees a lot of leeway, we give them all the support in the world, but we want them to have fun. We want them to be themselves. I tell that every single training class that comes here to Wilmington to train with us with our franchisors or the franchisee brother coming here. And then when I go on site and visit our restaurants at the grand opening, I have part of my same speech every time is, I don't care if I ever walk into this restaurant and you don't say, welcome to Chuck and Check. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear, hey, welcome, have a seat, let me get you to bed. That portion creates genuine, authentic interaction. That portion creates community, and community is fun. And so that's what we're after. We, we believe that we will grow. But we know that we will grow. And the best way to do it is to have fun and to make sure that's imparted as a part of our company culture and our brand. Thank you so much. This is great.